Welcome, everybody, to Who's Your Band on a Sunday afternoon. Usually we do this on a Sunday night, but you got NFL playoffs, you got things going on. So we're doing this on a Sunday afternoon. And joining me, as always, is my co-host, Mr. Sean Morton. How are you, Sean? I'm good, Jeffrey. Why don't you back up from that microphone a little bit? It's not a dick, okay? He can, think, he can still hear you from far away. I'm, okay. I'm a lot like Hillary Clinton with a microphone. I like to scream into it. More like Monica but, Lewinsky, but anyway, continue. You know, that may have been one of the best jokes you made of already in 2023. <laughs> um, but speaking of jokes, because this guy, our guest today, he is not only a comic. Okay, I mean that just saying a comic is really just just the tip, the tip of the iceberg. He's a writer, he's an author, he's a doctor, he's a radio personality. And again, that's just the start of it. Okay. It is my pleasure to welcome in our guest for this evening, this, this afternoon, Mr. Jeffrey Gurian. How are you, Jeff? I'm great, Jeffrey, and thanks so much for that nice introduction. And it's great to be on with you guys, you and yeah. Sean. I get I've, been, I've been Facebook friends with you for a long, long time. And when I first clicked on the picture, I'm like, I need to be friends with Phil Spector. So that's why I, <laughs> I kind of hit the thing. But I never really talked to you before, so this is going to be the first time. I'm, in, I'm, ready, I'm ready for it. That's so funny. That everyone thinks I'm in the music business, but we'll get into that, I'm sure. Yeah, we will. But but here's here's I think how we have to start, Jeffrey. Who the fuck are you? Yeah, I've been trying to figure that out for years, man. And it was so perfect that the documentary was named that title, because everyone always says the same thing. <laughs> Mark Maron started it. I That's think right. you know, he said he was the first one to say that wherever I go, people say, "Who the fuck is that guy?" And you know, it's so funny because at the end of that short video that I sent you. John Mulaney did that without me knowing. We were up at the Just for Laughs Festival and he was addressing the whole industry. And he was talking about Andy Kindler. And because Andy Kindler for maybe 30 years does a speech every year in Montreal um, about the state of the industry. And everybody shows up because he makes fun of everybody in the industry. And Mulaney was, was introducing him to speak to the whole crowd. And he's like, I dream someday of uh, walking through a hotel lobby and there's a picture there. And uh, uh, it's done by Andy Kindler. And the picture was taken by Jeffrey Gurian, he goes. And and I wasn't in the room. And then he says, and if you don't know who that is, if you see some guy, you're like, who the fuck is that? That's Jeffrey Gurian. And, and I couldn't believe it. So I was on the red carpet doing interviews and somebody said to me, did you hear that Mulaney shouted you out? I'm like, no. And somebody saved that piece of video and sent it to me. And I consider it priceless because no one ever has to think about you. But when you're on somebody's mind, it's very interesting to me that people in the course of their busy day, that every so often that somebody will think about you. And most of the time, you don't even know it. But in this case, it's it was captured on video. So anyway... That's how that started. And that led to the documentary being made. This this nice filmmaker contacted me and he said, would you be open to having a documentary done about your life? And I said, you know, it's a, it's a scary thing in a way. It's very, it's a big honor, but it's also very nerve wracking to allow cameras to follow you around wherever you go and to really open up and be vulnerable and talk about mm -hmm. your life, you know? And so... Uh, he wound up with that documentary. He goes, I'm going to use the same title. Who the fuck is Jeffrey Gurian? And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. People get that. They totally you know, Jeff, get it. Jeff, you, I mean, I, I've worked with you a bunch of times, you know, different clubs. Whenever you walk in, okay, it is, it's it, it, it's a thing. Like you, ha you have a, a look, you have a presence about you. You're always with somebody, someone who looks really good. Okay. You know, you have like this look. So, is is this is this look calculated or is this who you are? It's an interesting question, Jeffrey. Everybody chooses a look for themselves. You decided to grow a little goatee. Sean has this thing happening, you know, a Fu Manchu. Those are choices that you guys made. I made a choice many years ago. You know, when you go into the army, the first thing they do is shave your head. Everybody's clean shaven because that takes away your identity. That's right. They want, they want everybody to be the same. And with men, you know, some men lose all their hair. They don't have any choice. 
But with men, your look is your identity. And somewhere along the line, like when I was a kid, I remember being like 10 years old and looking at car mirrors to check out my hair. My hair, my hair was always important to me, how I how I presented myself. You know, my my mom was very into appearance. My grandfather owned a nightclub. It was a very popular nightclub in the Bronx in the 1940s and 50s. I, uh, as a matter of fact, when I met the the a lot of the comedians from the golden age, like Milton Berle and Henny Youngman and those guys, they knew of my grandfather's nightclub. It was very popular. So I was exposed to show business at a very early age. And I saw that you need to present a persona for yourself. But a lot of it, a lot of it came when I conquered stuttering. And I'll tell you how I put those things together. I was a very severe stutterer from the time I was six or seven years old through my 20s and beyond, even into my 30s. I was still blocking on certain words. And, Wait, so and when you were in college, when you were in high school, all this time, you, you had a, uh, a, would you say, a severe studying problem? Yeah, yeah, I remember being called on in high school to answer a question, and I stood at my desk. And not in, in those days, you had to stand up to answer a question if the teacher asked you something. You stood up right by the side of your desk. By the side of your desk, and I stood mm -hmm. there, and not a word could come out. I couldn't get anything out. And I just stood there in silence, turning red from embarrassment. And I remember it to this day because each each of us can remember all the traumatic events that happen in our lives. We we remember them easier than we remember the happy events. For some reason, trauma is deeply ingrained in our consciousness, much more so than happy events. When I got to college, I made myself run for the president of the freshman class. It was a huge college. Where did you go to college? I went to Hunter College and I was only 16 years old. I skipped a couple of grades. Where'd you I, go to high school? I went to a Taft High School in the Bronx where I grew up. Okay. So, and, so and and just so we have a little background about you. You're in you're in high school. It's it can't be easy being, you know, a Jewish kid with a, a stutter. Okay. Were you involved in performing <laughs> arts? I don't see I love how you just mentioned that. <laughs> I love how you go, it must have been hard to be a Jewish kid with a stutter as you're going, it must be hard to be a Jewish kid with with a stutter. <laughs> Fucking great. That was I could end the episode right here and be completely happy. You know what? I don't I don't want to say anything to, to make Jeff feel uncomfortable, but at the same time, I think it's important to establish this because you know, when when you're in high school and you, you know it's it's it's, I've seen kids, it's it's hard for some kids. Sure. And it sure, really takes them a lot. I always say if high school was the best time in your life, you should probably kill yourself. It's a very awkward time for but most Jeff, there's a lot of people it's that horrible. is the best time in their life. For I know, you, it's very sad, very sad. I mean, when you look at you and, I, and what I know of you is like your life seems to be ascending. Some people, that is the pinnacle. And I agree with you. That, you know, that is like, you know, that's the best time. That's, if it doesn't get any better than that, right. Kill yourself because it's only going to get worse. So only... I just had a, I just had a conversation with my 13 year old cousin who this kid has gone through so much stuff in his life. Like he they, he had a stroke in utero. Right. Right. Right before he was born. So this kid has had it his back against the wall the whole time. He also has cerebral palsy. So he has a little bit of a limp. But this kid is hysterical. He's smart. He's loving. He's caring. And he just had his first instance with a kid bullying him. So me being like the, you know, the older cousin, uncle, whatever you want to call it. I went over to him and explained to him how people are pieces of shit. And they're going to make fun of you for any little kind of uh, difference that you're going to have. And I said to him, you got to remember that these people, if they're doing this now, they're going to be that way the rest of their lives. And you're going to see these kind of people your entire life. And all you got to do is rise above it. That's true. You know so good that you said that to him, Sean, because I'm jumping, I'm jumping the gun a lot by what we're going to talk about. And we'll go back to this. But it's it's the reason that I wrote the most recent happiness book that I wrote. Well, I want to I want to get I want to get I want to get into to your book and I want to get into happiness, but I still want to get into that yet. But I was going to say it's called facing adversity because people have to overcome tremendous obstacles in their lives. So you did a wonderful thing by telling him that because some people are crushed by their obstacles and other people overcome them. And I, I've always admired people who do that. And I collected these stories for 20 years. So, Absolutely. So you asked about college. 
No, I, at first, yes. How, before school. you even get to college, how did you overcome the stutter, confidence issues in high school, which could be crippling? Okay, how do you do that where you're you're graduating early and you're 16 years old going to Hunter College? I uh, I was voted the most talented when I went to school in those days. Um, I was supposedly popular, but I didn't know it. I didn't believe it. I didn't feel it. I felt very awkward. And when I went to school in those days in the yearbook, they would have like uh, prettiest girl, handsomest guy, uh, best athlete, stuff like that. Right. And I was voted most talented. I played the piano and the drums and I was in the band and the orchestra or whatever. And and I was voted one of the so-called senior celebrities. So supposedly I was popular, but I didn't feel it. I'm stuttering. I'm nervous. Did you have girlfriends? Mm, I'm trying to remember. Um yeah, I did have a girlfriend, and when she broke up with me, it's a pain that I could feel to this day because I'm an empath. I remember getting a letter from her when she was away at camp for the summer. And again, I was uh, 16 in college, so I must have been 15, 14, 15. And uh, her name was Celia, and I was so in love with her. And she sent me a letter, and I remember reading that letter, and I can feel the pain of it to this day because, as I said, the painful things in our lives are deeply ingrained inside of us. I call them heart wounds. And we'll get to that when I talk about my books. So I'm in college and I make myself run for the president of the freshman class. And I can't say Gurian. Most stutterers have a very hard time saying their own name because your name is your identity. And if you're not happy with who you are, it's very hard to tell people your name. So I can't say Gurian. I could say Jeffrey. So I had other kids act as my campaign managers to introduce me to kids I didn't know, which was most of the campus. And I told myself if I could win the election, I wouldn't have to stutter anymore because it would tell me that people liked me because you can't win an election if people don't vote for you, right? What so, were you studying in, in, high, in college? I was, a, I was a, a chemistry major and a biology. No, I was a biology major and a chemistry minor, also Ooh. English because I was a very good writer. But I had to, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I decided that when I was- And that's why you went to Hunter. I know, no, I knew that when I was 12. I went to Hunter because it was a city school. It was very hard to get into. And my parents didn't have a lot of money. So I was hoping to get into a city school because it was much more affordable. And being 16, I wasn't ready to go out of town on my own. No, no, that would have been That's, yeah, that's like a baby, crazy. 16 years old. I, I, right. I wasn't ready. So I wanted to stay in town and I was lucky enough that my test scores were high enough that I could get into a city school, which was considered a big honor in those days. So, so I tell myself if I can win the election, I won't have to stutter anymore. And I win the election. I'm the president of the freshman class of Hunter College, and I still stuttered. Wow. And so it was a great lesson for me because it taught me that outside validation in life doesn't work. It doesn't matter how many people tell you you're fantastic and wonderful and handsome and talented. It matters what you think of yourself. And that started my journey of acceptance and to understand what was in my mind, what thoughts I was holding that were not valid for me. Because every one of us are holding thoughts that hold us back. The thoughts that tell you that you can't be successful, that you're not enough, that you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not good looking enough, whatever it tells you. And those thoughts are not true. So one day I discovered that I didn't stutter when I was alone. I could well, go into a room and speak perfectly. I could say Gurian. I could say every word that I thought was hard to say. Well, and hold I, on a second, Jeff. Yeah. In Are you familiar with the allegory of the cave? No. Okay. It, it was it, it was something that Plato wrote, and it's about perception. Okay. Where you have prisoners, and it, you know, it, and it's 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 actually it's fictional, but it it proves a point, and the point is. The, the you had these three prisoners and they have their backs turned to the entrance of the cave and all they see is shadows so their reality is the shadows is that reality in their mind is it their reality one of the one of the um the, the prisoners escapes he goes out sees what the real world is comes back reports it back to the other two prisoners and they're like you're crazy so to piggyback on what you just said is reality reality that you have in your head you're not good enough you're not good looking enough you're not smart enough could that be someone's reality if it's in their own head and they believe it well yeah it's the power behind the power of positive thinking what you believe you bring into your life 
So it's important that at some point, if your thoughts are not working for you, like you know all of your thoughts. And if you have any intelligence at all, you tend to believe your thoughts. But you created every one of your thoughts. And your thoughts are not necessarily based on your experience. They're based on your interpretation of your experience. So what it means is that you could have siblings that grow up in the same household, household that are completely different people. And if you ask them about their childhood, you'd think they had different parents because their, their interpretation of how they grew up and what happened to them is completely different. And so the idea is, and it's a very hard thing to do to examine your own thoughts, to see what thoughts you're holding that are not valid for you. And that's the essence of a lot of my books. You know, I went up with eight and five are on comedy and the last three are on happiness and thought mindset. So as you can see, I no longer stutter. And now I work with, as an avocation, I work with stutterers all over the world to teach them how not to stutter because it has to do with how you control your mind. And I, I, I built a website and during the pandemic, I wanted to test myself because tech is very hard for me. And I, and I was staying home for months because as you may recall, I had COVID double pneumonia and I was in the hospital. And you were I, pretty banged up during that. Really, really sick. And I stayed home for several months in order to recover. And while I was home, I wanted to turn a negative into a positive. So I built a website for stuttering. And there's a lot of videos on there of me speaking, but also people that I've helped, that I work with, who tell their story. And um, it's, you know, it, it's very important to put information out to the universe to teach people that you don't have to stay with your own thoughts, mm -hmm. that your thoughts can be misleading. If you have patterns in your life where you're getting the same bad job over and over again, the same bad relationship over and over again, and the only common denominator is you, then it has to be something in your thoughts that's missing. And you need new thoughts. And very often the new thoughts are spiritual wisdom, nothing to do with religion, just a spiritual way of looking at things. But do, do sometimes people get vapor lock where they can't get out of their own way and they, they're kind of like mental cripples? Of sure. course, that's what self-sabotage so so yeah. your How do you overcome that, in your opinion? It's a process. What, first, you have to point it out to people so that they acknowledge that they have it. You can't help someone who doesn't understand that they have a problem first. They have to acknowledge the problem. Some people engage in self-sabotage, and I work with a lot of people like that. And there's a lot of people like that in comedy. Just before you get a big break, you do something to fuck it up. You know, some Is that a common trait among comedians, you think? Well, not the ones that make it big, but a lot of the ones well, that... Well, there are ones that make it big that also are completely unhappy. And in their mind, their perception is it's not big enough or it's not enough. Well, why don't you look at it this way? Think of it this way. Take 100 comics. Chances are you're going to have four or five who got into comedy because they actually love the art of writing a joke. They love mm -hmm. the art of stand-up. 95% of us are fucked up in the head. And we have issues and we go up there on stage every single night seeking validation from strangers for something that it was lacking in our lives. Right. And that's what I talked about earlier, that outside validation doesn't work. Right. Exactly. It doesn't matter how many people laugh at you, tell you you're hilarious and all. It matters what you think of yourself. And that's a real, it's a difficult process. You have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you. And you have to nurture the inner child that's alive inside of you. Mm -hmm. Little Sean is still alive inside of you, and he's wounded in some way, as is all of us. Right. I always tell people, I think I've said this on, on the show before, you know, I'm, I'm doing this uh, 15 years now. So now I'm getting to the point where, you know, I can make my decisions and things like that and pick when I want to work. And now I get uh, younger comics will ask me questions and ask me advice. You know, how do you how do you write? How do you do this? What advice do you give? And the only advice that I give all the time is be a good person. That's just be a good person. This is a, this is a thing you can just go through in life, not just comedy in anything. I've done things in comedy that I should not have done in the time frame that I've been doing it, and it's just because I always put try and put positive energy out there and try and just be a good person and help people out, and things come back to you. When you're a piece of shit, you know what? You might get a breaker here and there, but it's going to be one break, and then you're done. Yeah, it's karma. I, I, you know, I believe in all that stuff. When I, well, when I mentioned spirituality, I just wanted to say briefly, 
because some people confuse it with religion. Religion can be wonderful for people, but it tends to divide us because it puts you in a category and other people are automatically outside that category. And what spirituality is, is only that you believe in a force greater than yourself. Mm -hmm. that's, that's controlling your life. Because when you think it's you, then you tend to blame yourself when things don't go the way you would like them to. So, so many people are living in the past thinking, what I should have done, what I could have said in that situation, it would have worked out differently. They're worrying about the future. And meanwhile, they're losing the now. They're not present for their life. Right. And the days just fly by and then they're not achieving their goals. They're not doing anything. So the, 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 the concept, I'll give you an example of a spiritual concept that I use. So you work really hard to get something that you think you should have in your life and it falls through and you don't get it. So you could either think, hey, I'm the ultimate victim of the universe. Nothing ever works out for me the way it does for other people. Or you could think to yourself, you know what? I didn't get that thing, but it's because I'm supposed to have something better than that. And mm -hmm. if, I got, if I got the thing I wanted, I wouldn't be available for the really good thing that's coming to me. But that, but that requires patience. And as human beings, we don't have patience. We want everything right now. So every question you ask the universe will be answered, not necessarily... When you is, hold on a second, Jeff, is lack of patience? Do you think it's more generational? Well, these days it certainly is. Right, heck, everybody's got a thirty-second uh, uh, attention span, which is horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Um, but it's always been that way. It's natural. I think it's human nature. We want what we want now. Nobody says, you know, wait five years, wait a year. A year flies by, by the way. You well, know? listen, you've been in comedy for a long time. Okay, both hey, of you guys have. Yeah, and yeah. You, you know there was a process and it was and it, it took it took you know years to get to the level that you would like to eventually achieve in today's world you got comics who are in the game for about a year and a half two years and it's like why why am i not famous yet why am i not i'm not playing the the store why am i not on tour yet you know yeah. you, well, you know at two years at two years in you know unless you're maybe john stewart who had like an a, a, you know incredible ascension most comics, it's a it's a process that you're sure. in, like you know, at least ten years before something really and really big happens for you. And if it happens earlier, it's an anomaly. It's very true, Jeff. I mean, like I I always uh, push this. Uh, what do you call it? Um, issue, not issue, but uh, I say reason. that um, I say that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason, and. You know, I wanted to be a full-time comic. You know, I wanted to be a full-time comic. I got booked on my first cruise and the cruise happened. And I booked out a lot of dates. And then what happened is all of a sudden uh, a global pandemic came. So mm -hmm. then I'm home. Now I'm unemployed. I'm home for nine months. And then I say to myself, well, what do I do? So, you know, I go through this whole mental thing. And then, you know, I wind up getting a different position and I buy my first house and I get my dog, who's my love of my life and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, this is this is how I believe that things always happen for a reason. I have friends who are sick, friends who have gone through a lot of stuff and they get depressed. And I just say, you got to trust the process. You have to trust the process. And that's the, the, the thing I live by completely. Everyone has a path. When I like about seven years ago, I had a heart attack. It came out of nowhere. I had never been sick a day in my life. The night before, I was at three events, one of them with the Sirius XM people. We were out partying. Next day, I get a serious heart attack, the one they call a widowmaker heart attack. Holy and I shit. had a remark. Wait, how did, what brings that on? They don't know. They said a piece of plaque that we start collecting plaque from the time we're young people in our 20s or whatever. It builds up. And sometimes a piece breaks off. And that's the only thing they could guess because I was 95% blocked in the major artery to my heart. How, how did you know you were having a heart attack? <laughs> it's a weird story. I was, uh, I had an appointment with a chiropractor. I woke up in the morning and I felt this weird feeling in my chest, but it wasn't like any symptom that they tell you like an elephant on your chest or hard to breathe or you're nauseous or sweating, none of that. I just had a weird feeling and I had been working out a lot and I thought maybe it was muscular because when I rubbed it, it felt better. And I'm like, well, you can't rub away a heart attack. So maybe it's nothing. So I had an appointment with a new chiropractor. He wasn't new. My, my appointment was new. It was the first time I was going to see him. And I thought to myself, it was coincidental. I thought, well, I'll tell him about this pain. Maybe he could help me get rid of it. So 
it's it's pouring rain and it sounds really stupid, but very often I don't like to go out in the rain because of my hair. It really fucks up my hair. So I, I was I was going to cancel, but I decided I'm going to go. And the pain starts getting worse and I get on the subway and it's getting worse and I'm rubbing and rubbing and I get off at my stop. Were you having a hard time breathing? No, nothing like that. Just this pain in my chest and, and I'm rubbing it. And so I get off the subway and I have about six blocks to walk. I'm walking down 7th Avenue and I don't know what made me do this. I turned on 50th Street on the block leading to Radio City and I see a police van with four cops in it. And the pain is getting pretty intense. So I walk over and I knock on the window and I say to the cop, I'm sorry to bother you, but I think I'm having a heart attack. By the way, it's very embarrassing. It's very awkward to stop people and tell them that you think you're having a heart attack. But I said, I better tell somebody because I'd be an awful schmuck if I just die in the street and don't tell anybody, especially as a doctor, I'd be like a real jerk. So, so that's what I had to challenge my thinking. My thinking says to me, don't tell anybody. Just try to go about your business. But I had to step outside of that and say, no, tell somebody. You, you'd be stupid if you don't. So anyway, I tell the cop, I think I'm having a heart attack. And he says to me, well, I think you should go to the hospital. And I was like, well, that's why I'm telling you. I'm not just telling everyone. I thought that they would say to me, I, you know, I thought that they would say, jump in and they put the siren on and drive me to the hospital. But that's not what happened. He says to me, well, we're stuck in traffic. It'll probably be faster if you walk. So I said, well, where's the nearest hospital? And he didn't know. So none of the cops knew where there was a hospital nearby. So he takes out his phone and he starts looking for hospitals in, in the middle of traffic. And so he says to me, do you have Google Maps? And I said, no. Now, this is really stupid. It's pouring rain. I'm standing there with an umbrella, leaning against the car, telling him I have a heart attack. And he says to me, well, I think you should download Google Maps. So that's when I walked away. I said, you know what? I thought to myself, this is really stupid. It's like a Woody Allen movie. So I said to the cop, don't worry about it. I'm just going to try to get to this doctor because I have a chiropractor's appointment. I walk away, but I can only get another half a block because the pain was getting pretty intense. I did the same thing. Another cop on the corner. He's on a, a walkie-talkie. Same thing. Sorry to bother you. I think I'm having a heart attack. And he says to me, stand on the side. So I stand on the side a couple of minutes. And I say to the guy, are they coming? He goes, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't call them yet. Nobody seemed too upset. And I'll tell you why, Jeffrey. I think it was because I was very calm. For some reason, I wasn't panicked. My, my spiritual training tells me, for whatever reason, this is my path. I can't choose what's going to happen to me, only good things, right? There's a tendency to ask, why me when these things are happening? Why is this happening to me? But the, the spiritual answer is, why not me? Whoever promised me that my life is supposed to be perfect. So finally, a fire engine comes and four or five guys get off the truck. They're like, who's the patient? And I said, me. And the guy says to me, climb up on the truck. And I'm like, seriously? He's like, now nah, we're just fucking with you. Everybody was kidding with me. Like nobody took what it seriously. What the hell? It was crazy. They finally, finally an ambulance came and they got me to the hospital. It turned out that the kind of heart attack I was having doesn't show on an EKG. So they weren't convinced that I was having a heart attack, but I was pretty sure that I was. And they put me, first of all, they get me to the hospital. They can't get the door open. They can't get me into the emergency room. The door will not open. The guy had to climb up by hand that opened the door. And he's like, one way or another, we're getting you in there. And they kept me in the emergency room for nine hours. Thank God. What saved me was some genius doctor decided to put me on blood thinners because they didn't they didn't know what to do with me. There was no rooms available in the cardiac unit. So I laid in the emergency room for nine hours, fortunately, with a with a blood thinner from three in the afternoon till midnight. At and midnight, you started feeling better? No, at midnight, they got me into the cardiac unit and some guy came and he said to me, we're going to see you tomorrow. He goes, if you have pain in the middle of the night, ring this button and we'll come and we'll do it as an emergency. We think you have a blockage in your heart. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I had some pain, but I was afraid to ring the button because I'm like, who's on duty in the middle of the night? I don't want some beginner working on my heart. And so I said a prayer and I went back to sleep. And in the morning, they took I me down. I was able to sleep, Jeff. Uh, I, I Listen, it was a weird experience. They took me down to the... 
Because I called again in the morning. I called my doctor. I said, when are they going to come and do something for me? I'm here since yesterday. So they came and they took me. And I said, I want to meet the surgeon before they do anything to me. I want to see who's going to work on me. And as they were wheeling me into the OR, this young guy with long hair popped out. And he's like, I'm your surgeon. He goes, and it's my duty to tell you. He goes, I'm going to go into your heart through your arm. He goes, and it's my duty to tell you that your arm could go permanently numb. But in all my years of doing it, it's never happened even once. And I said, you know what? I trust you, man. Just go ahead. And so I wasn't completely asleep. And I'm on the operating table. And I feel them unplugging my heart. I can feel it. And I said to the guy, I feel you in my heart. Not in a romantic way, but I feel you in my heart. <laughs> and it wasn't a Rod Stewart lyric? The whole surgical team started to laugh. And later in the day, he came to my room to hug me. He goes, you're a miracle. He goes, that's the first time a patient ever joked with me on the operating table when I was working on their heart. So I'm back on stage five days later, and I'm at New York Comedy Club. And Emilio, the owner, says to me, what are you, crazy? You just had a heart attack. I'm like, yeah, but it's hard to get a spot here. I don't want to lose my spot. <laughs> and only a comedian would understand that, how insane <laughs> we, that is. I get it. Listen, got a lot of lot of stuff to get to with you today, okay? Yeah. Um, so, Jeff, you wrote several books on comedy. You also wrote multiple books on happiness. So, two-part question. Why happiness? And what do you know about happiness? Well, first of all, happiness is the only thing that all people want all over the world. So, it's been my goal my whole life to put out positive energy to the universe. You know, I was a comedy journalist also for more than 20 years, and I've been covering the comedy scene and I never wrote a bad thing about anybody, not because I lie. If somebody has a bad show, I don't write about it because I respect everybody that performs. And I don't want to put negative energy out. Anybody could have a bad set. So I hate critics. I hate when people criticize people for things that they don't do themselves, like film critics. And I couldn't well, agree with you more. Yeah, I mean, that's their job is to criticize people. What a negative way to live. So... So there's I, a way of doing it, and then there's a there's a, a mean-spirited way of doing mean -spirited it. Way, yeah. So I like to support people. When people are talented, I want other people to know about it. So I wrote columns. It started in 1999. And, you know, my last was for the Interrobang for five years. I had my column jumping around with Jeffrey Gurian, and I got that after I was on Sirius XM with Ron Bennington for a couple of years. Right. Um, you know, and so... I cover the comedy scene. So positive energy is always important to me. And when I recovered, when I was lucky enough to recover from the heart attack and COVID and all, I wanted to put out a message of hope to people because the last three years, we've all been so stressed out. And uh, when I was at Sirius XM, they helped me create a pilot called The Happiness Show. And it was a show I brought on Colin Quinn, Susie Essman, and Lisa Lampanelli. I wanted to bring on well-known comedians to talk about how they bring happiness into their own lives. Because all over the world, if you ask people what they want, everyone just wants the same thing. They just want to be happy. And being happy means something different to everybody. To me, you know, family is so important to me. I'm very grateful that some woman trusted me enough to marry me. I have amazing daughters and I'm very grateful for that. Some people don't need that in their lives. For me personally, I do. And I'm very blessed to have that. So I wanted to write books that were meaningful to people, that would help people who were struggling. So the first book I wrote, and I'm going to show it to you, is called Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, A Spiritual and Humorous Approach to Achieving Happiness. When did this come out? This came out around 2000, maybe 19, I guess, 18. Uh, it came out as a bestseller on Amazon. It's got over 280, mostly five-star reviews. And if you read them, they're very, I mean, people write that it's a life-changing book. Healing your heart doesn't refer to heart surgery. It's about the heart wounds. Like Sean, when you were talking about that young man being bullied, those things stay with you. When you were bullied as a child, every one of us can remember something mean that someone said. You know that stupid saying they say, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you, is the furthest from the truth. Because all the bruises you had as a kid healed up a long time hey, ago. Hey, Jeff, tell me about it. I got a mean-spirited co-host that yeah. constantly bullies me. 
Well, everyone, yeah, I, I don't bully you. I just tell you the things that everybody wants to say to you that no one wants to because, oh, look, it's Jeff Paul. He produces this show. Oh, look, he's got a spot over here. I want to jump on the show. I don't fucking care about your shows, dude. I got my own shit. I do my own comedy where I make a lot of money. I don't need to be nice to you if I don't want to. <laughs> he, he don't want to. He, he's never nice to me, Jeffrey. But go, go on. No, but, you know, it's interesting. A lot of guys feel they have to bust balls. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was Patrice O'Neill's co-host on the Black Phillip show. It was Dante Nero first, and then he brought me on as his co-host. And Patrice had a reputation. Never, never go up against Patrice because he'll destroy you. Nope. He and I never had that. We didn't have that kind of relationship. We embraced each other for whatever reason. Who knows why? But Because you're a, both smart guys. It was mutual respect. And you look alike. I never, yeah, I used to tell him, you should come out on stage holding me in your arms, you know? It was, <laughs> it, was it was, he was just an amazing, amazing person. And when I did Bobby Kelly's podcast once, you know, um, uh, you know what, dude, they all rip each other to shreds, but they didn't do that with me. And at the end, I was nervous to go on because I didn't know what they were going to say, you know, the same with the Comedy Cellar podcast when I did that. And I said to him afterwards, thanks for not doing that with me. And he goes, we would never do that to you. And I was like, that is really so nice because I believe that men need to treat each other better. Men men think they have to tear each other down or break balls, bust balls, whatever. That's something that I reject because I think men need to build each other up and support each other. So I understand the need for comedy. Look, I wrote the Friars Roast for 12 years. I was the main writer. And I know how to write filthy shit and I know how to write derogatory stuff about people but i always went up to the person being honored and i said is there anything that you're sensitive about that you don't want to have jokes told about because my i never wanted to hurt somebody's feelings with the jokes mm -hmm. and these days with roast battle they purposely try to hurt your feelings if someone in your family has cancer they use that as the focus of the joke you're to spot me, on with that you are so spot because i did, we I did it in the fryer but Jeff, where did it too. change and why did it change because people ran out of shit to say, man. It's like, I, I don't know. Like, there, there was a time, you know, I was in the Friars such a long time. Milton Burl was my sponsor in the Friars Club, which was such a great honor to me. A lot of people don't even know who he was. But I always tell young comics, know your history. Know who came before you, you know. So I got to work with all those guys, aside from all the guys from today, like Nick Kroll and John Mulaney. But comedy in those days was a kinder comedy. First of all, there was no cable TV. So you had to work clean if you wanted to be on television, if, if you needed people to know who you were. And then, you know, with cable, people try to outdo themselves being outrageous. There's, you know, there's clever comedy, and then there's just a lot of new comics think you just have to get up and talk about going to the bathroom, and that's funny. You're supposed to outgrow that when you're nine. If that's all you could think of to talk about on stage, then you're in the wrong field. I think the outrageous part, I think that's pretty much hitting the nail on the head. Well, look, I think, I, I, and also Jeff, I mean, you probably know this better than anybody back in the, in the day when they had uh, roasts, you know, the, the people were on the dais, well, they knew the person they were roasting today. They're exactly. just bringing in the celebrity. Yeah, just anybody who's willing to say nasty shit about the person. That's right. right. Those that one of the things that hurt Chevy chase when, you know, we roasted him three times was that the people on the dais, at, by the time of the third roast, there was nobody that knew him. And, and he was very badly hurt by it. And he said it to the audience, how much the jokes hurt him, because they were very mean-spirited. And the point of them was to literally to hurt him. Um, it wasn't like his friends were up there saying funny shit about him. So in the old days, it was a kinder thing, man. Just people were nicer to each other. There were more amenities. And then... Comedy got very mean spirited, and as that's a reflection of society as well. I yeah. think so, yeah. and people feel like they have to say nasty shit in order to be funny. I tell young comics like I'm involved in a new show. I was hired as an exec producer for a new comedy. It's a it's going to be a competition slash reality show, and so I've been interviewing young comics who look like they have promise, and I'm also supposed to mentor them, and I tell them what not to talk about if I if I'm if I bring a date to a comedy club, I don't want to hear about some guy going to the bathroom while I'm having dinner. I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's clever. You know, I one of the reasons that I respect Jerry Seinfeld so much is because he's always stayed clean. 
and he was known as the doctor of comedy. He's a wordsmith. He loves the power of words. Sean mentioned it earlier when he said the art of writing jokes. It's a craft. It's very special. When I came up, older famous comics would say, write me a hunk of material. A hunk of material. I don't even know if they use that expression anymore. A hunk of material means find a premise that's funny and build a lot of jokes around that premise. So you wind up with several jokes, like a whole thing about one particular thing. And that's what I do when I go on stage. I talk about a lot of stuff that I think is, is funny, but the jokes are often connected. Some people just get up and talk about shit that they, they did that day. Like, or somebody, you, you know, my uncle is so funny. You should, he's here, you know, you should hear what my uncle said. No one gives a fuck about that. You know, I, I think that, I, I, I don't know. I just have, I feel very protective about comedy. And I want comedians who come up to really appreciate it as an art form. And so many comedians these days got famous from social media. They have a, right. a, hot, a hot YouTube channel or they're putting out funny TikTok videos. But then they try to go on stage and they totally bomb because they don't have material. They don't have anything funny to say. It's like, you know, it's different being funny with your friends. Everybody says, oh, you should see my friend. He's hilarious. Yeah. Try putting him on stage and see how he does with an audience of people that don't know him. Blame the club owners for that. Well, I guess, yeah, there's there's plenty of, you know, look, and a, a lot of times actors too. Actors think that just because they're used to being on stage that they can do comedy. Now, Jeremy Piven is very funny. And I went to see him not too long ago and we actually became friends because I was curious to see what he did because I loved him in Entourage. And I thought to myself, is this going to be another actor who thinks he can do comedy? But he's actually funny and he has great stage presence and he had funny material. And so I went over to meet him afterwards and I told him and we became friends, you know, and uh, but it's not that common that actors can transition to stand up comedy. All right, stand, Jeff. stand up comics can transition to acting, but it doesn't mm -hmm. always work the other way around. OK, so so far you've mentioned Nick Kroll, John Mulaney, uh, Mark Marin, you know, at, at the very beginning, Milton Berle. I mean, you're naming some legendary people. And again, it's just the tip of it. How do you know all these people? I never figured it out, man. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> it's really crazy. When I, when I was a kid, I started out wanting to know. There was only three people I ever wanted to know. Woody Allen, Salvador Dali, and the Beach Boys. And I made Jesus it Jesus Christ. What an eclectic group right there. No, and I, I made it all happen. Woody. Well, Rick, stop. Wait, wait. You're going to tell the Woody Allen story because it, it, it would not do I would not do this audience justice if you don't tell it. But I didn't. You met Salvador Dali. I spent an evening with Salvador Dali. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know the, these things. Each one of them is a long story. I don't want to take up that much time, but but I got to meet them all. I contrived ways to meet them. I spent time with them. And it was truly amazing. Woody read my earliest material. Well, let's, let, let's, let's start there. Let's go there because this is a great, great story. I don't know if you've ever heard the story, Sean, mm. but the way Jeffrey Gurian met Woody Allen is an inspiration to anyone who, I'm going to use a Jewish word, Jeff. You ready? Yeah. Anyone who has chutzpah. Right. Okay. That's Jeffrey Gurian. Jeff, tell, this, tell how you met Woody Allen. This is a great I story. I don't think I could do it these days, uh, to be honest with you. But I was a junior in dental school, and Woody was my idol when he was doing stand-up on the Ed Sullivan Show. There was nobody ever funnier. You know, he would do jokes like, uh, he was walking down the street, and a, a maniac threw a Bible out of the window at him. And luckily, he had a bullet in his breast pocket. And if it wasn't for that bullet, the Bible would have pierced his heart. And it, it was just like, you know... <laughs> He, he just had such a bizarre way of thinking. And it was so much the way I thought, you know, like I have this book called Man Robs Bank with His Chin, which is very Monty Python-esque. I, I wrote a column for the Weekly World News called Gurian's World of the Bazaar. It was the precursor to The Onion. So I always liked unusual and strange humor. And so, so I knew I had to meet Woody and I had this dream that we should work together, right? So... He was in he was starring on Broadway at the time with Tony Roberts and a show called Play It Again, Sam. And I was coming home from dental school on occasional weekends. I had no money. I didn't have money for tickets to a show. Um, and I, but How I just, old were you I, at the time? 
I was young. I never discuss age. That's a whole other story. I'll tell you why afterwards. But well, once you once you own an age, you're responsible for that age, and it's all bullshit. It just depends on when your parents got together. So I never own an age. I'm ageless. So what happened? So I decided that I want. I had to meet Woody Allen, and I knew that if you're going to meet a big star, you have to show them that you're sane. Because why would they want to meet you? There's no reason in the world why Woody Allen wants to meet young men who want to break into comedy, right? So I realized there's only two ways to show you're saying you either wear a tie or you bring a pretty girl with you. And I didn't have a tie. And I only knew one pretty girl and she hated me because we had just broken up. But she knew my dream was to meet Woody Allen. And I begged her to come with me because I didn't have the, the confidence to go anywhere on my own. It was always I had to have a beautiful girl on my arm. That's how you show you're saying. And I had been leaving notes for Woody backstage. When I would come to New York, I'd go to the theater and I would leave a note on the back of my dental school card as if I already knew Woody. So I would leave notes like, Woody, I haven't seen you in a long time. It's Jeffrey. I can't wait to see you again. And I'll be coming to the show and I'll come backstage and we'll hang out. I would leave crazy notes. I'm bringing my cardboard thumb. I remember writing that. I don't know what made me think of a cardboard thumb. But anyway, I was leaving those kind of notes. Finally, I guess I saved up enough money to buy tickets. I borrowed my father's car. I pick up the girl and I go to the theater and intermission comes. And now I'm in a panic because I have to meet Woody Allen and I'm very nervous and I don't want to go. And she goes, you have to go. You brought me here to meet Woody Allen. You can't chicken out. I go backstage and in those days, there's no terrorism. So it's very easy. You knock on the stage door. The stage manager is there usually. I knock on the door. There's nobody there. The stage manager is not in his seat. I take her hand. I run inside. I run up the staircase, but it was the wrong staircase. I went to the roof. So I come back down and the stage manager is there now. And he says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm here. Uh, Woody's expecting me. And he says, well, go right in. So I go to Woody's dressing room and it's empty. There's nobody there. He's in Tony Roberts dressing room with the whole cast. So now I'm really in a panic. I'm like, how am I going to do this? She goes, you have to do it. You can't back out. I go to the room and I can picture it like it was yesterday, Jeffrey. Woody is sitting on a couch. The whole cast is mingling around. Woody's on a couch across from me. And I look into the room and I go like this to him, like a little child. And he goes, me, like this? And I said, yes, like this. And he comes over to me and he's actually holding my card, the card I left him. And he says to me, you must be Jeff. And at that moment, I lost it completely. And I start saying ridiculous shit, like, let's open up a day camp and throw winter clothes at people. <laughs> let's, let's walk low like we used to in Europe. And he looks at the girl I'm with. He goes, this guy's a fucking nut, just like that. And I realized I was getting too intense because I was meeting my idol. You know, I was like 21 years old, probably, right? So... So he says to me, listen, I'm in the middle of a show. I started explaining. I'm a comedy writer. I write stuff. Everyone says my stuff is just like yours. And I wanted to meet you. And he said, well, look, I'm in the middle of a show. Do you think you could come back tomorrow night? And I was like, I'm, I'm much too busy. <laughs> I said, of course, I'll come back tomorrow night. So I begged the same girl to come with me. Right. It's pouring rain. I borrow my father's car again. We get to the theater. He waits till the end of the show this time. And this time I'm much more relaxed than I say to him, you know, the Aztecs weren't too good at tap dancing, but boy, could they sway. And I went into a whole thing about swaying, how swaying used to be very big in the 40s. Anyway, he, he sat with me for like an hour and he read all my material and it wasn't even in script form. It was like scraps of paper in an envelope. And he sat with me backstage and he looked at all my stuff and I, of course, my dream was he's going to say, Jeffrey, we need to do movies together. But instead, he said, listen, you have a very visual sense of humor and you should really think of making a film out of it. And so it took me some years and I did. I, 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 I made a film called The Men Who Series that debuted at Caroline's Comedy Club. And it was about men who do very unusual things, men who take a pitchfork to the movies, men who enjoy Latin dancing with tools. Like I had a guy who did the tango with a wrench that was unbelievable. And the most incredible was, you know who Peter Dinklage is, right? Yeah, well, listen, Jeff, I, I saw some of this. And to me, this was very, very Monty Python-esque. And, it, and it's, it's so bizarre that it's my sense of humor. I thought it was hysterical. Well, thank you. And so I, 
you know, I brought it to everybody in showbiz. That, that's how I got started up at Saturday Night Live with Alan's Y. Bell. But nobody knew where to put them in those days. Nobody knew where to put crazy little films that I was shooting on the street with like, you know, several men were arrested for smearing cream cheese on the ankles of elderly women who wear their stockings rolled down like bagels. That's you know, the so funny. Stockings, my, That's so funny. My dear grandmother let me put cream cheese on her ankles. She she made believe she had a Jewish accent. And she said, you know, we have two kinds of stockings, one for milk and one for meat. She goes, and this crazy man, he smeared cream cheese on my meat stockings and I can't get it off. And I brought it up to Saturday Night Live and Alan's wife Bell saw it. And he goes, I never saw anything like that. And he sent me to his manager. But Peter Dinklage was dancing in the film called Men Who Dance Where They're Not Supposed To. And right, I and a, there was as the one with the street sign. Yeah, a street sign that said no dancing Tuesday and Thursday or any other time. My artist made an amazing replica of a no parking sign, and we put it up on 28th Street and Broadway and caused a traffic jam because we forgot to take it down. And I thought I was going to get in so much trouble with the police because cars were pulling up to park and they see a sign that says no no dancing Tuesday and Thursday. It was ridiculous. But Peter, who knew that Peter Dinklage was going to become one of the biggest stars in the world, right? And he's dancing in my film. And that's something- but as as nice as Woody Allen was to you, uh, oh, Dennis Miller later. was was not. Yeah, right, exactly. But years later, Woody's people couldn't believe. Jack Rollins became a big help to me in my career. Jack Rollins was the legendary uh, manager who managed Woody, Robin Williams, and Billy Crystal, which is how I met Billy and Robin, because he introduced me to them. He wanted me to meet them. He wanted Billy to play me in a sitcom about a dentist who wanted to be in show business. So Jack Rollins was always a very big help for me. And when he heard the story, he goes, that's so unusual for Woody to be that nice to somebody, to go out of his way. He must have really seen something in you. And then many years later, I did a film called I Am Woody about a mob boss who's obsessed with Woody Allen, a very violent mob boss. And and uh, he gets uh, he survives a mob hit and he comes out of it with amnesia. And now he really thinks he's Woody Allen, but he's six foot five and 300 pounds. So he's a huge Woody Allen. And he talks like him and he wears the hat. and. It was it was uh, a very successful film. It was a short film that won some awards. Do you still stay in touch with Woody at all, or have you ever seen? No, him again? I've seen him over the years. The last time I saw him was a few years ago. We took pictures together. He almost smiled. His uh, his best friend John Dumanian was with him. He was he was performing. You know, he plays the clarinet in a jazz band, and he was performing at a hotel. I'm blanking on the name on the on the Upper East Side. Well, I know he used to play. I think he used to play at Iridium a lot, of, didn't he? Iridium, right? He used to play at Iridium, but now he was. I think it was at the Carlisle Hotel where Bobby Short played. And so, anyway, they were going to reintroduce me to him, and they were talking kind of slow. So at the end of the show, they bring me into the hall, and Woody's coming. And I started to say to him, I was going to say to him, Woody, I'm a very good friend of Jack Rollins. And I don't know what made me do it. At the last minute, I said to him, hi, Woody, I'm a very good friend of yours. And he <laughs> just, just started to laugh. And he's like, really, how long do we know each other? And I'm like, decades, you know. And so we took pictures together. And that was the last time I saw him. That was probably about, I don't know, five years ago or so, six years ago. You really like one of the greatest writers of all time, one of the greatest directors of all time, probably walks around every once in a while and says, you know, I keep bumping into this guy who's a true sociopath. <laughs> probably. He probably. saw me 40 years ago at a play. He bum rushed my 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 dressing room, my dressing room. Then he keeps following me all over New York City and taking pictures of me and telling me how great of a friend I am to him. That is a that is a great, great story. It now before we even get a little bit about music, because we have to talk a little music on the show, um, t- tell us a little bit about what with Dennis Miller. And because, again, like I said, Woody Allen was cool to you. Dennis Miller, not so much. That was a big mistake. It's, it's something that l- literally changed my life. And it was another l- lesson learned. You know, I got I got the opportunity to show my films at Saturday Night Live. And they set up a meeting for me with a guy named John Head, who was the head of... Uh, film acquisition at the time and i had the bright idea to bring a date i was, I was well it, it goes back to the confidence thing with you yeah you I want you want to show you're not crazy you wear dating, a tie or you bring a date i was dating this actress and she was very beautiful i met her at columbus cafe 
And I thought I would impress her by bringing in Saturday Night Live. I don't, I don't, I can't imagine that I would do something that stupid. So Dennis Miller was there and he wanted to meet her. And, uh, and he sat in, he asked if he could sit in on the meeting. And I remember, you know, again, trauma stays with you. I remember it like it was yesterday. So I'm showing them the films and everybody's laughing. And all he wanted to do was meet the girl. And so at the end of the meeting, John had said to me, I see no reason why you shouldn't be doing films for Saturday Night Live. He goes, call me on Monday and I'll set up a meeting for you with Lauren Michaels. So I call that weekend. He got her number and went out partying with her without me, takes her out. And as I remember, partying with some famous people, maybe Robin and Billy, I don't know, but I don't remember that exactly. But I remember feeling really distraught when I found that out. And then I call on Monday and John says to me, I'm out of it. He goes, um, Dennis Miller liked your film so much that he wants you to call him and he'll handle it. And so he would never take my call. I would call him and he wouldn't answer. So we were hanging out at the same place at Columbus Cafe. And that's how I knew him originally. And I said to him one night, I saw him, I go, what's up? You're not taking my calls. And he goes, you know what? The show wants me to do remotes. Remotes means like films from the street, which is right. what I did. I was making these little crazy films out on the street with my Super 8 camera. And he goes, that, that's not my focus, but that's what you do. So if you can send me some funny ideas, I'll use them on the show. And I'm like, when do you want them? He goes, tomorrow. So I stayed up most of the night writing ideas for him that he would do. And he never answered me, never got back to me. And so I ruined my own chance at having uh, a shot at doing films of Saturday Night Live. And the lesson was that, again, that was my path. I didn't know it then, but it was a very painful time. So when I told Mark Maron the story, it's not a story I tell a lot because I'm not really proud of it, but it's the truth. Mark Maron said uh, in that video on my YouTube channel, he goes, I think he owes you an apology. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it was an important lesson for me in terms of confidence that it's you, it's me that gets invited to these things. It's not, no one ever says you can come if you bring a certain type of person with you. If you have a date, no one, you know, it's like, well, I was trying to prove to myself, you know, and it was a it was a big, important lesson for me. And I've never done that again ever since. Anytime that I have something really important to go to, I'm very careful who I bring with me, if I bring anyone at all. Very often I go alone. But if it's something in the industry where it's important, I show up because I'm the person that they asked to come, not someone that they don't know. They asked me. That's right. Yeah, you know that that's unfortunate that happens, and um, I'm sorry it did. And you could have been you could have been Robert Schmeigel, you know, and and had that that spot. Uh, yeah, listen, we only, we only have a few minutes. Mine, by the way, he's a friend of mine, and I brought him on Sirius XM as my guest. We're we're still in touch. Now we but we only have a few minutes, and, and like like I said, this this we can do this for three four hours because yeah, of your because of your background. I mean, yeah. there's so much to talk about, but let's but like well, the few what, minutes that we have left, let's talk a little music. I do. I want to say one thing though. It's very important to me to just briefly about my happiness books. I want people to know about them, okay? Because this is the main focus of my life. I've become a motivational speaker because of them. So, and they've been helping a lot of people. So I will talk about music because I have a funny story. But I want to say I wrote the other book is called "Fight the Fear: Overcoming Obstacles That Stand in Your Way." Fight the fear. And it's all about. This was the second one. Yeah. Fear is a bully that doesn't want you to accomplish anything. And it's very important. I've been fighting fear all my life and I don't let it stand in my way. So many things make me nervous. I don't know where that came from. I came from a very loving and supportive family, but I grew up with a lot of fears and the fears told me that I'd never be successful. And even today, I think, well, I haven't done enough. People say, oh, you did all, all these things, but I still feel I have a lot more to do. So the essence of fighting fear. In 2019, I did the scariest thing I could think of to do. I went to Japan all by myself for two weeks. And I spoke Japanese. And I, I have fears of getting lost. And I went on the on the Japanese subways. every. I was lost every day in Japan. But I made it back. And I made it happen. And I performed in two shows while I was there. And the third book I wrote after I recovered from COVID was called Facing Adversity. Stories. Right, this of is the latest one that's out. 
It's the latest one. And all these books can you can get on Amazon. On Amazon. And it's true stories of people that have overcome amazing obstacles in their lives, people with no limbs who lead happy, meaningful lives. And I'm impressed by that. And I collected these stories over 20 years. I started cutting out articles in 1999. And during the pandemic, when I was home, I said, let me tackle this project that I've always wanted to do. And I wrote the book and it's inspirational to people. So thanks for letting me mention that. And now that you want to talk about music, let's talk about music. Yeah, now we only have like a, like I said, a few minutes left. And you, the name of our show is called Who's Your Band? And I know you told me your band is the Rolling Stones. Always. Uh, okay, always. So it's always how the Rolling Stones, why not the Beatles? Why not the Beach Boys? But why for you, the Rolling Stones? The Beach Boys would have come in a close second. They helped me get through the depression of high school when I was stuttering in those days. And I got to thank them. I interviewed them on the red carpet at a Friars Roast. And it was very special that I got to thank the remaining members of the Beach Boys for helping me get through the difficult times in my life. Did it you get a chance like, to interview uh, Brian Wilson? Um, there was Mike Love, and I don't think Brian was there. There were two of the Beach Boys were there. And I, uh, to be honest with you, I don't remember which ones, but I remember the experience of being able to thank them. But the Stones were always important to me. They were rebellious. Mick is like 78. He's still like he's in his 20s, man. Absolutely. On stage, moving. Nobody moves like Jagger. And... You know, I got to meet him once and I got to meet Keith Richards once. And there was an article in the Daily in, in the New York Post recently. They write about me fairly often. They did a thing called Rock's Main Man. And because when my hair was very long, I was invited to a, a music event, the Songwriters Hall of Fame. My girlfriend at the time was in the music business. She was a singer and she got invited and she brought me as her date. So we're sitting at a table. It's black tie. I have very long hair that everyone assumed that I was a music executive. And Billy Joel, Paul Anka, and Keith Richards all made a separate stop at my table just to say hello to me. Because you know how it is? Like, but did they know you? No, they thought they did. They all said, hey, how you doing? Keith Richards, like, haven't seen you in a long time. And I'm laughing my ass off. I want to say, you haven't seen me forever. Nobody, they didn't know me, but they assumed by my presence. Since I stopped stuttering, I learned to have a lot of confidence, whether I feel it inside or not. In order to be able to, to face a crowd, in order to get on stage and perform comedy or go on the radio or do any of the things I did that I do, I have to have confidence. And I may be very nervous inside, but people say that I exude this sense of confidence. So when I walk in places, people think I'm in the music business because I have that look. And so the New York Post did this whole article about all these people. So recently I'm at Rockers on Broadway and three, it was very noisy. It's all, it's Broadway stars singing rock songs to raise money for charity, for poor kids, for needy children. And I get invited every year and I'm standing there watching the show and three different women came over to thank me for my contributions to the music business. <laughs> it was so noisy. I didn't say to them, who do you think I am? I just said, thank you. Because there was no way to have a conversation. But I just thought it was so funny that that's still happening, that people think that I'm in the music business. Uh, give, so, me your top, under... give me your top three Rolling Stone songs. I was going to say top five, Sean. But okay, we'll go top three. I don't know. Satisfaction. You know, I'm not good at answering questions. I actually hate questions like that. When people say, what's your favorite book, your favorite movie? Those are questions for the general public. What's your favorite co-host on this podcast? Sean Morton, of course. Of course, everybody <laughs> says that. So, so there's no question about that, right? So, so how about your your go-to Stone songs? Like for me, like a song I can never get enough of is "Gimme Shelter." It's my it's my favorite song. It, Give me shelter something, is good, but it has a negative thing because at Altamont, that's where the the guy got stabbed and all. I like "Under My Thumb." You know, if I if I heard the songs, I could tell you it's not like I sit around and listen to them. I think that Mick Jagger is like a role model in some way. I love the fact that he doesn't allow age to stop him. He feels like he's in his 20s, man. He's out there on stage performing. He looks he, great. You know, he looks great. He still has a fun life. He's got a lot of kids. You know, he's doing it. He's just doing it. He didn't say, oh, I'm 78. I better stay home now, you know? He's, he's he's the essence of rock and roll. And when I grew up, 
that meant a lot to me to see that and to think that they're doing that for more than 50 years, man. That's incredible to do anything for more than 50 years and to be popular for more than 50 years, to sustain a career. How many people do that in comedy? You know how hard that is to sustain a career? Yeah. For 50 almost, years almost impossible. All right, listen, Jeff, we got uh, under two minutes to uh, say goodbye. So just just for our audience, let them know where they can find you, where they can find your books, and what do you have coming up? Okay, so my website is ComedyMattersTV.com. My YouTube channel is youtube.com slash comedy matters TV, where you'll see I have over 500 interviews with everybody from Jimmy Fallon on down. Everybody in comedy is on my channel um, doing fun stuff, man. It's not like a journalist who doesn't know these people. They stop off and they tell me real stuff about themselves. And it's it's an intimate look at the comedy world. Uh, Instagram, I'm at Jeffrey Gurian. TikTok, Jeffrey L. Gurian. And... Uh, if you know anybody who stutters, tell them to go to my stuttering website, stopstutteringnowgurian.com. All my books are on Amazon, including Man Rob's Bank with His Chin, which has blurbs from Richard Lewis, Colin Jost, and Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll said, Jeffrey Gurian asked me to write a blurb for his book, and this is it. <laughs> and so, so all my books are on Amazon. And especially this one, if you're having trouble in your life, if you're feeling a lot of stress, go for Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind. Healing Your Heart. And there are, there are three more books. Dog. Do you have any idea how hard it is to get a dog to sit in lotus position? It's almost impossible. <laughs> it's very, Jeffrey, very I, I, I got to wrap it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. We really, like I said, we could have, we could have done this for, for hours. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. It was great to be on with you guys. You and Sean, too. Thanks so much. Thank Sean. you guys so much. Okay. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Take care. Absolutely. Bye-bye now.